Well, good morning. Great to see you all. Happy New Year, 2015. Listen, I'm 66, I'm taking it slow. Some people asked this morning how, uh, how our, uh, how our uh, thank you, Brandon, nice to see you again, how our uh, Christmas went. I thought I'd bring an illustration. There are 11 of us uh, got together Christmas. Uh, we started with six full, full ones of these. We're down to about two half uh, ones of Kleenex. I think nine out of the 11 got six somewhere along the road. And, uh, and I'll do well as long as I don't take a deep breath or laugh. So uh, if I start laughing at the end of the third, second point, someone could just go down to base camp and say, we're done in here, so we're coming for the kids. <laughs> And uh, so, beginning of the year, let's look, at, uh, let's look at some things about goal setting, shall we? Here's some scriptures. The first comes from Philippians. Paul wrote this. He writes, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Then a series of verses that are all about the single greatest value in the kingdom of God, which is love. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. This was, by the way, Jesus' favorite book in the Old Testament. He quoted from Deuteronomy more than any other book. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then then Jesus is responding in Matthew 22. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then we read Paul in Corinthians. He spends a whole chapter on the topic of love, and at the end of that chapter, he writes, and now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And then Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I uh, decided to slow down the purchase of books until I read some of the books I already own. So I've been trying to read all my, uh, the books that are secular biographies and autobiographies. And uh, one of them I recently finished was The Life of Jessica Savage. Now you'd have to be kind of my age to know who she was, but back in the 1980s when news organizations were dominated by men, Jessica Savage became a news reporter on one of the major networks And some thought she might become the first network anchor news reporter. She was beautiful. She had a great presentation. And uh, got into New York, got into the fast lane, and it was faster than her fragile psyche could handle. Eventually, she'd gone out to eat one evening in October 1983 with a friend. He left the dark parking lot made a wrong turn, drove off an embankment into a canal. The car flipped over, landed on its top in uh, water and mud, and she suffocated to death at 32. 
The funeral was held at a small, kind of shabby little funeral home, 20 minutes long. The people who were there said it was an awful affair, depressing. A couple things were read, a eulogy was given. And then the funeral director stood up and said, well, that's it, that's all there is, please exit to the left. Now, one of the things that's true about being fallen people, and we're all fallen, is that we have a propensity to drift. Unless we set a goal, clarify it, keep it in front of us, rally other people around it, we have a propensity to drift. We can start a new year and make casual statements about how I would like to be better at this, or do this, or have this happen. But if we don't invite people into our life that rally around that, if we don't alter our schedule to accommodate that, if we don't exert resources in order to make that happen, then six months in, we've almost forgotten about it. And we drift. And so perhaps 2017, maybe this is a year in which the Lord invites you on an adventure. And he wants to clarify it. And he wants that goal to become visible to you. Some years ago, there was a study done of a graduating class from Harvard. And they asked the entire class of Harvard um, what they planned to do with their Harvard degree. And uh, a percentage of them had some vague notion of what they were going to do. The, mass, the vast majority didn't have any idea at all. They just thought, well, it's a degree from Harvard. It's got to be worth something. Uh, I'm just going to go out and find out. 3% had a precise idea of what they were going to do with their degree from Harvard. About 25 years later, they went back to that same class. And they, had, they found that the 3% who knew exactly what they were going to do had accumulated more wealth than the other 97% combined. And Paul said, forgetting what is behind, that I have this goal. He was saying something important to us. He said, I'm not going to drift. Perhaps the Lord has an adventure. And I like, uh, like J.R.R. Tolkien and uh, the Hobbits and Lord of the Rings and Our family went to all those uh, every Christmas for three years. Uh, I've decided to reread Tolkien's, uh, probably the one that, the book that made him famous at the beginning, which was called The Hobbit. The beginning of The Hobbit, Gandalf, who is a uh, wise wizard, shows up in the little village where all the hobbits live. And uh, he visits Bilbo Baggins, and uh, Gandalf says, "Uh, well, I'm... I'm looking for someone who might want to take an adventure with me, but I'm having a hard time finding them. And Bilbo says, I I should not wonder. Adventures, we have no use for those. We might miss dinner. (laughs) But I think that the Lord, because creativity and innovation is part of his nature, may have an adventure for you. It might be an adventure he invites you on. It might be an adventure he allows you to choose. It may be an adventure that is imposed upon you. But in any one of those scenarios, God promises to be with you. 
But a number of our verses are about love. If you're looking for an adventure, there's no better place to look than the arena of love. Love is the highest value in the kingdom of God. And there are three things I think we could reflect on this morning about love. The first is this. Love is not only an action, but it's also a window. Love isn't a, isn't a set of techniques. Well, I just got to get this down and this down and this down and then I'll be loving. Love is a way you look at the world and at yourself and at the people in your world. You can tell the difference of love if you're in an, air, uh, in, in an airplane and there's a, a young mother with a crying baby. And you know that she is thinking about that crying baby differently than the person in the row behind them. Now that's a, uh, that's a pertinent illustration for us because when we had grandkids that were quite little, at Christmas time, our uh, kids would fly from Beijing, China to here for Christmas. And you take a six-month-old baby on a 12-hour airplane flight and you are not really friends with most of the people sitting around you by the end. They're not thinking, oh, I love babies. No. They're waiting to get off so they can tell someone of the horrific trip they just had. But the mother or the father, however embarrassed they might be, because their baby cried for a long way, they're looking at that experience quite differently. There's a lot of ways you can, there's a lot of windows through which you can look at life. You can look through the window of image so that you view yourself and everyone else you meet on the basis of how they look, how they present themselves. There's the window of achievement, whether somebody's value is all based on how much they achieve and what they achieve. Some people uh, look through the window of their own baggage, the fears they carry or the hurts. You go into the Old Testament, you study the book of Obadiah, which is an unremittently negative book of judgment against the Edomites. You know who the Edomites were? The Edomites were the, were the descendants of Esau. Remember the story? Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the oldest, and Jacob came in and deceptively stole the birthright for, from Esau for a bowl of chili. What do you suppose the family self-talk was after that? Well, we know what it was. Esau and his defendants felt taken advantage of. They felt someone had stolen something that was theirs. And from that time on, it was a Hatfields and McCoys, and the Esau's descendants despised the descendants of Jacob. So much so that when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, the Edomites would not let, him cro- let them cross their land. It even gets worse. When the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem and refugees fled, the Edomites lined themselves up so they could gather up the fleeing refugees and give them to the invading army. How did the Edomites look at the world? They saw the world through bitter eyes. Others couldn't be trusted. 
they'd been taken advantage of. So you and I have choices, and one is I can, I can choose which window through which I'm going to look at the world, and one of the windows is the window of love. We see it illustrated when Jesus tells us about the story of a prodigal, wayward son who shows great disrespect to the father, demands money, takes off for the far country, wastes it all, spends it all, ends up feeding pigs, ends up eating the, the meals the pigs were going to eat, finally decides he's going to go back. And the Bible says when the father saw his son afar, he ran to him. The father could have chosen to look at the world through bitterness, how he was mistreated and disrespected by his son. But he ran to his son, an old man running to his wayward son. Let's kill the fatted calf. Here I have a beautiful robe for you to wear. So love is not only an action, but it's also a window. The second thing about love, it can't be restrained. It seeps out everywhere. So God was, uh, God, God was irritated with Sodom and Gomorrah. The evil of Sodom and Gomorrah is so evil that even non-church people today, thousands of years later, know that Sodom and Gomorrah stand for evil. That's how notorious those cities were. And he tells Abraham, that's it, and he's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham begins to argue with, uh, with God. And he said, yeah, yeah, but, but how about if you found 50 righteous people, you'd spare the city, right? And God says, all right, uh, for, for 50 righteous people, I'll spare the city. He says, how about 45? 45 righteous people. All right, for 45 righteous people, I'll spare the city. How about 40? Well, all right, for 40. Now, Abraham's on a roll, and he thinks God's in a good, in a good place because then he starts jumping by tens. So he's gone from 50 to 45 to 40. Now he says, all right, how about 30? All right. How about 20? Yeah, okay, I'll spare the city for... How about 10? Would you spare the city for 10? Now, by the way, there's a truth in this beyond just the mercy of God. In God's economy, good weighs more than evil. In God's economy, good weighs more than evil. It's not like, well, I got a scale and here's one good deed and here's one evil deed or one sinful deed and, and therefore it's it. No. Good. The Bible says good overcomes evil. Good weighs more than evil. And what does Satan try to tell you? He tries to tell you just the opposite. If you've done 20 righteous things today and you sinned once, Satan tries to tell you that that sin weighs more than all the righteous things you've done before the Lord. That's not true. Good weighs more than evil. So he said, even for the righteous lives of 10 people, I will spare the city. Shows up again in Jonah. Jonah's, uh, Jonah is told to go to the Nineveh, Ninevites and tell them that they're going to be judged if they don't change. 
Jonah doesn't want to go because everybody hates the Ninevites. They're like the New England Patriots of the NFL. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm sick. I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) Someone asked me once who my favorite team was. I said, the Minnesota Vikings or who's ever playing the Patriots. Nineveh was part of Assyria. Assyria was a powerful country. The city of Nineveh took 60 to 80 miles in circumference. Multiple walls, some walls so thick that you could race four chariots across them. Moats, massive gates, great splendor. But they were the ISIS of their day. They were infamous for barbaric brutality and nobody was going to weep if Nineveh was destroyed. He says, Jonah, go, go tell the Ninevites that if they don't change their ways and says, no, I, you know, I won't go. I don't want to go because I want them to be judged and I want them to be blotted from the face of the earth so that they're no longer a, a thorn in the side of uh, Israel. And so Jonah runs away and he ends up in a ship and then in the water and then in the belly of a great fish. And finally he goes, begrudgingly, and he gives them the message and then he goes up on a hillside to see what happens and the Bible says that they repented. And Jonah is mad. And look at what he accuses God of. Ever accuse somebody of something? You don't ever listen to me. Don't you ever love that word Ever? ever listen to me? How come I always have to do this? Well, listen to the accusations of Jonah against God. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were a compassionate God. I knew you were slow to anger and that you were abounding in love. I knew that you would relent from bringing calamity on these people. Shame, shame, shame. So he's just, He was blaming God for all of his good qualities. And then the Lord said, Jonah, what do you expect me to do? When I look down and I see 120,000 people who do not know their left hand from their right hand. See, love, love, Love isn't just the father for the prodigal because they were still related. God couldn't help it. He, he, he showed love to the Ninevites. He was willing to show more love to Sodom and Gomorrah because love just seeps out. So Jesus hangs on a cross. Says, father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Then the last is uh, love is the pinnacle of character and the meaning of life. Most lists in the Bible are incomplete lists. It means that God could have added other things to them. He just is giving us a list. And very few lists are in order except this list out of Second Peter. Peter's writing and he's telling us about virtue and character. And he says, now, add to your faith. And so he's giving us a list that is complete. And it's a list In ascending order, imagine a stair step. And he said, now, add to your faith virtue. 
And add to virtue knowledge. And add to knowledge self-control. And add to self-control perseverance. And then he says, add to perseverance godliness, brotherly kindness, love. The three top stair steps are all about relationships. So when God comes to me and and talks to me about maturity, one of the things he's saying is the highest measure of my maturity is how I love. The highest measure of my maturity is how I love. So John, he's writing the gospel. Imagine, imagine the stuff that John saw. This guy walked with the Son of God, the creator of the universe. The miracles, the teaching. But now he's sitting down to write the gospel of John. And he refers to himself three times in that gospel. And he just says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Man, he could have talked about some, he could have talked about some big time events. Yesterday we were watching the Fiesta Bowl and my wife said that uh, a neighbor gal that she walks with sometimes, they were down in Lake Havasu and she said they had just texted that they were at, at the Fiesta Bowl in uh, Phoenix for her husband's birthday. Uh, nothing compared to the stuff John saw. But the biggest thing in John's life was that he was a disciple whom Jesus loved. You remember Christmas Eve, Bob down on his knee, illustrating how he would take his sons, his children in their face in his hands so he could get eye contact and he would, he would remind them how much he loved them. Love is the pinnacle of our character. and It is the meaning of life. We were asked as staff to do a little exercise this week. Take a day or two and reflect on some questions that we were free to write ourselves, but lay them before the Lord and reflect on them. Um, tell you what I ended up hearing from the Lord. Um, so, uh, so there's a movie called Shadowland. Shadowlands is about the life of C.S. Lewis, a great Christian writer and apologist from Oxford, and. Uh, in, in the movie, he's having trouble with a student who's, who's, who's a bit rebellious. And by rebellious, I mean, he, like, he's stealing books from the library. And I mean, you, you steal books from the Bodleian Library in Oxford. I mean, you're, you're in trouble. I mean, that's a, it's almost impossible to get a library card to that library, let alone steal books out of it. And uh, so he's talking to this young student. He's, he's, he's even offering to pay for the, for the books. And uh, finally, the student says, I read to know that I'm not alone. Now, I don't know why that phrase came up in the context of my just laying things before the Lord, but the Lord says, you know, I want you to say, I pray to know I'm not alone. 
I could make a case with you about how prayer changes things and how prayer gets things done in the kingdom, but that's not all that prayer is about. Prayer is about love. It's about a relationship. And the blinking neon light in a dark room for me this week was, I want you to start writing out your prayers this year. And I want you to remember every time you do it, I pray to know that I'm not alone. So Paul said, this one thing I do, perhaps the Lord has an adventure for you. Why don't we ask him? Let's bow our heads and finish up this morning. Close your eyes and let's just take a moment right where you're seated. Would you ask the Lord that? Lord, is there an adventure you want to take me on this year? Is there an adventure you're inviting me to choose? Well, I face an adventure that's going to be imposed on me. In any of those places, I don't want to be alone. And then just listen for a moment. See if the Lord brings something to the surface and invites you to rally your life and your friends and your resources around that goal. So let's ask him. Father, we are comforted to be reminded this morning that the greatest value in the kingdom of God is love. We thank you that you love us. And Lord, if you have surfaced with some of us this morning in this room an adventure you're inviting us on, would you help us to honor that Would you send grace to us to walk that adventure? And would you help us this morning to know the first step so that adventure is not lost or stolen? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information, or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.